1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Senegal's national football team is headed home from the World Cup. But the country's football culture is very much on the up. We visit a training academy that's setting an example for how to gather and train the plentiful talent. And it's getting increasingly difficult to buy deodorant in New York City. Our intrepid correspondent presses ahead anyway, finding out something about the changing nature of organized crime in America. First up though, Today, an agreement designed to crimp the money going to Russia comes into effect. Leaders had been wrangling for weeks and weeks trying to stem the flow of oil revenues that continue even after nine months of war to fill Russia's coffers. What the G7 and European Union have come up with isn't all that drastic. The most significant measure is a cap on the price that can be paid for Russian oil arriving by sea. Russia's foreign ministry said it was more than a mechanism outside the market. A spokesperson called it an anti-market measure.
2: Of of
1: and Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky slammed the level of the price cap, suggesting it wasn't a serious decision.
2: He called the
1: cap quite comfortable for the budget of a terrorist state. It's by now an old problem. How to put pressure on petrostates when petrostates can put so much pressure on the world economy, especially one that's still in such a fragile condition. So
3: there's a fiddly set of sanctions coming into effect today.
1: Rachana Shanbog is our deputy business affairs editor.
3: One set involves a ban on European seaborne imports of Russian oil, and the other allows European firms to ensure and provide maritime services to tankers carrying Russian crude only if they respect a price cap that's been set by the West. And both sets of sanctions are intended to limit Vladimir Putin's oil earnings, but both run the risk of raising oil prices for global consumers.
1: So let's start first with the price cap, and in particular going after insurers. How does all that work?
3: It's an attempt for the West to use its market power. European insurers and Shipping firms have a real vice like grip on energy markets. About 95% of property and indemnity insurance for all oil tankers was handled by firms from Britain and the EU earlier in the year. And if a boat can't be insured, then it won't sail. So, back in May, the EU and Britain announced an all out ban on their insurers providing services to tankers carrying Russian oil. But if Russian oil doesn't come to market, then global oil prices might spike, hurting Western consumers. So fearing the impact on global prices, America's Treasury Department came up with a plan to weaken the sanctions so European firms can continue to offer their services as long as a price cap is respected and the oil involved is bought at a suppressed price that's been set by the West. After much discussion, that price has been set at about $60 a barrel. And the idea is that the tankers and the insurers are responsible for enforcing those sanctions.
1: You say after much discussion, how did the number $60 a barrel get reached?
3: There's been a tension involved in Western sanctions on Russian oil because on the one hand, countries want to punish Vladimir Putin they want to take a chunk out of his oil earnings on the other hand they don't want to hurt western consumers too much they don't want western consumers to be paying very high prices for oil so the negotiation here was what price can be set that hurts russian oil revenues without leading russia to restrict its production and curb the global supply of oil so the flaw for the negotiation was russia's cost of production which is thought to be in the region of 20 to 44 dollars a barrel so that Vladimir Putin continued to have a reason to pump oil. But nobody really knows how Vladimir Putin would respond to a price cap at all. So, for example, even if you set the price cap above Russia's cost of production, he might choose to restrict his output to try and raise global prices. And because of that uncertainty around how Russia might respond, the price cap ended up being set at around the current market rate for Russian crude, which is around $60 a barrel. Of course, the Ukrainians aren't happy that the price has been set as high as $60 a barrel. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky says that that will not do very much to hamper the Russian war machine.
1: But in a sense, any cap at all is going to be something of a squeeze on Russia and the Kremlin. What's been Russia's response to all this?
3: Well, the Kremlin has come out and said that it won't accept the terms of a price cap and it won't sell oil subject to it. Over the weekend, Russia's deputy prime minister said that the country would rather cut production, but we don't know whether that rhetoric will be backed up by action. America's Treasury Department has said that even if countries don't sign up to the price cap, they can still use it as a sort of Bargaining mechanism to try and bring down the price of Russian oil. So it might not matter whether other countries outside of the West sign up to the oil cap or not. There's lots of uncertainty here, and that will only be resolved over coming days and weeks. The other question is what happens once the global oil price starts to rise? So at the moment, the cap is set at the price that Russia's been receiving for its oil. But imagine if demand for oil starts to rise and global prices start to rise. Will the cap then start to bind? That's another question.
1: But there's still this possibility then that Russia does the spiteful thing and and cuts production. What happens in that case?
3: Well, the result is less supply on oil markets and a violent price spike, potentially. That doesn't seem to have happened yet. Prices are up this morning as we speak, but by about 2%. Set against that, we know that Russia and other non-western countries have had 6 months to prepare for these rules because the insurance embargo was first announced in May, and so Russia may have been able to seek alternative sources of insurance. We know they've been buying tankers from other oil producers, and sort of amassing a dark fleet. Insurance for very big spills might still be hard to attain from anywhere outside of Europe. But the energy system has been quite adaptable so far this year, and it seems likely that Russia's been doing its best to prepare for these sanctions coming in.
1: But as you hinted at there, this is a question of rules put in place by the EU, by America. What about the rest of the world? How is the rest of the world viewing this? How do you think it'll deal with this?
3: That's a really good question. In a sense, this is a test of how much power the West has over energy markets. America's Treasury hopes that the price cap means a bargain for countries like China and India because it will mean that they've got more power when they're buying oil from Russia, they can try and get the price down. But non-aligned countries, big oil consumers such as China, India, have been very clear that they don't want any part in the West sanctions regime. They're not interested in participating. They're not interested in enforcing sanctions. So like Russia, they may well have been trying to seek or to set up alternative ways to finance oil shipments to ensure them and substituting away from European involvement as much as possible.
1: So clearly the short term question that is how Russia immediately responds, but I suppose the longer one is having waited all this time for the sanctions to come in. What's the midterm view? Is there going to be a way to restrict Russia's oil revenues without messing with the global market?
3: I think it's hard not to be pessimistic about how successful sanctions like this can be in the long term. If we've learned anything over the past nine months of war, it's that the energy market has been more adaptable than the West has expected. And we've seen round after round of sanctions imposed and Russia's export earnings continue to be pretty robust. Financial sanctions have only energised attempts to evade the Western banking apparatus And these fuel sanctions may well lead China, India and others to try and circumvent the Western energy infrastructure. So in the long term, sanctions and embargoes like this will have a finite shelf life.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, Rajna.
3: Thanks for having me, Jason.
1: We hope you enjoy listening to the intelligence as much as we enjoy making it. We're always thinking of ways to improve, and to do that, we'd like to know more about you. Do us a little favor and fill out a short questionnaire at economist.com slash intelligence survey. The link is in the show notes. Thanks.
3: Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry?
2: Foden takes it up, and takes it on, and gets it in, and so does Saka. A wonderful third England goal. And it's the in
1: the first knockout stage of the World Cup last night, England beat Senegal 3-0. Early on in the match, it didn't look like England was going to have an easy ride.
2: Stopped from shooting by Walker. Might be a chance here. It's a good save by Pickford. It like handball all day, but more warning signs.
1: There was some familiarity between the two teams. Five of Senegal's starting eleven play in the English leagues. Sadio Mene, the team's star player, who, alas, didn't make it to the World Cup thanks to a knee injury, played for Liverpool until this summer. And despite their World Cup exit, it's been a triumphant year for Senegal, which in February won the African Cup of Nations. Football in the country is on the up, and by design, not by accident.
0: I recently went out to visit a pretty unique kind of school, a couple of hours outside of Dakar, the capital of Senegal. The school is called Generation Foot, and it's both a school but also a football academy preparing Africa's future elite footballers for success.
1: Kinley Salmon is an Africa correspondent for The Economist.
0: C'est bien I met up with Talafal who who directs communications and marketing for the academy and he showed me around the the rather impressive facilities. The facilities include three lovely flat green training pitches next to a small stadium. That stadium has everything from corporate boxes for sponsors to a video analysis suite. This whole site even has a barber to make sure all the budding footballers are looking trim. They're installing a new kitchen which will even have its own patisserie. So the facilities are really quite extraordinary. And players as young as 12 years old live and train on the site. Et, uh, vraiment ça se passe bien, les joueurs sont bien traités. Teller told me things are going really well at the school and that the players are, are really well taken care of and, and in general don't complain. He also was keen to point out how successful the players are. Quand vous regardez le niveau de réussite, mm. de generation foot right. Masallah on croise les doigts. He explained that players from Generation Foot are playing now all over Europe. And he said, you know, that's not a surprise, really, when you look at the investment that they've put in uh, to training those players.
1: So tell me more about the, the success of the players that are coming out of it.
0: Well, they really do have some results to point at. I mean, more than 15 current players at the academy who join, I should say, after, you know, extensive scouting and trials, now represent Senegal in their various youth teams under-17, under-20s, and so on. And the national team for Senegal, known as the Taranga Lions, won the Africa Cup of Nations for the first time ever this year. That was thanks to a penalty kick from Sadio Mane, who's, frankly, Senegal's global superstar. He's a former Liverpool player now at Bayern Munich and was trained at Generation Foot. That win prompted just a, a, an extraordinary countrywide street party, which I was fortunate to, to witness myself. And even in this World Cup now, three players trained at Generation Foot were named in Senegal's World Cup squad. That included Mr. Mane, who had a particularly bumper year, having been voted the second best player in the world. But unfortunately, just before the tournament, to the despair of many people in Senegal, he was injured.
1: So clearly this one academy in in Senegal is extremely successful in what it's doing. Do you reckon it represents a a trend or the, the state of African football more generally?
0: Well, it's, it's important to say that generation Foot is particularly well-funded and, and well-functioning, and, and not everywhere is as well-funded as that. But I think it's also clear that African football really is changing, and not just in terms of the academies, like the one that I went to see. I mean, looking at the World Cup right now, this is the first time that all the coaches of African teams at the World Cup are actually African. We've also seen this year women's football on the rise, that the Africa Cup of Nations for women this year was the biggest ever. And then on those academies themselves, these are really big changes. In the past, you know, people talk to me about academies being, one pitch with perhaps a small house or building next to it. And other academies have looked more like failed aid projects. In 2010, Craig Bellamy, who was a former striker for Wales and, and Liverpool, set up an academy in Sierra Leone, but it suffered from poor bookkeeping. It was then hit and caught up by Ebola in that country. And as Mr. Bellamy's income as a footballer dried up as he retired, the funds for the academy did too. It shut down in 2016. So academies like Generation on Foot, and and there are some others, another in Senegal called Jambas, by contrast, they've been running successfully for many years. So I think it really is a change, part of a broader sort of sweep of modernization in African football.
1: And and what's behind it? What's the, the secret of success of places like Generosity on Foot?
0: Well, one of the reasons, in Generation Foot's case, is they've got very strong connections with a club called FC Metz, who play in the French second division. This is important because they partly fund the academy, and in exchange, they get first pick of the best players that the academy produces. They typically take a couple of players a year to play in France, and that was in fact how Sadio Mane made it into Europe in the first place. And then if those players are then sold on to bigger clubs, as as Mr. Mane was, Generation Foot gets a share of the profits from it, which helps to then develop the facilities further. And we see similar patterns with quite a few other African academies having links to European clubs or perhaps backing from from big businesses.
1: So the secret for success then is is simply that, that foreign backing?
0: Certainly, that foreign backing has has really helped generate on foot, and it, and it is the case, you know, elsewhere that it's been important too. But some academies have been set up more locally and have had sort of strong success, and then have seen maybe foreign clubs come in later down the track when they've already shown that they can produce high quality players, and then sort of joined in and, and jumped on their success. So it's not always a kind of a one way path. But it is the case that that gap with the very best European academies is still there. It has shrunk, but I don't think it's disappeared entirely. And so those partnerships can kind of help bridge that gap. So I spoke to Baswari Diaby, who's the head trainer at Genesio on Foot, and he did say, look, he still sees a big difference between African academies and European ones. And he knows what he was talking about. He was himself trained in Germany and has seen up close those facilities. Perhaps another sign that facilities in Europe and training in Europe remains perhaps even stronger is that nine of Senegal's squad of 26 for the World Cup are of Senegalese heritage but were born and largely trained in France. Mr. Javi thinks that if more players are to come out of, of Senegal, then a few things need to change. You know, one of those would be to further improve what what seemed to be already impressive infrastructure. He mentioned specifically getting synthetic pitches so the players are used to playing on that surface and can work on moves that aren't in any way erupted by the occasional divot or bump in a pitch. He also said that even though Generacion Foot has high-quality facilities, it's only one academy with jambas being another. But he said, you know, we only have a, a couple of good academies if we had six or seven, things would be much, much better in terms of the results they get. And that's pretty clear when you travel around Senegal, right outside Generosity on foot. In fact, you know, there are locals playing on a, on a sloping and sandy pitch with pretty rickety goalposts. So there's still quite a way to go for improving infrastructure and and academies in African football. And with all the best players trying to leave pretty quickly for Europe, it does make it somewhat harder to develop strong local leagues that might then support those quality facilities. But of course, players want to challenge themselves against the best and, and earn far more as they do in Europe. So I think changing that will certainly take quite some time.
1: Thanks very much for your time, Kinley.
0: Thanks for having me on the program.
2: If you go down to pharmacy in Manhattan looking for deodorant or any other toiletries, you'll more often than not be confronted with shelves of locked glass boxes.
1: Lizzie Pete writes about America for The Economist.
2: Hi, can I please get this one? I went down to one the other day looking for it, and I had hit a button marked call for assistance to bring a manager over and unlock the product on request, which can be quite a pain if you're in a rush. Thanks very much. Thank you.
1: What's going on here? Why is it? So difficult to get your hands on some deodorant in Manhattan.
2: There's been quite a big rise in theft and stores have responded by revamping their security systems or closing altogether. So Rite Aid, which is quite a big pharmacy chain, closed a branch in Hell's Kitchen, which is a part of Midtown Manhattan, after losing $200,000 worth of stock last winter alone. And recently Target, which is another major national retailer, reported that a rise in shrink, which is the industry term, had reduced its gross profit margin by $400 million so far this year. So altogether, National Retail Federation says that inventory loss, which is largely driven by theft, has cost retailers $95 billion last year, which is a record amount.
1: What's going on here? What's behind the rise in theft?
2: Well, one theory was that prosecutors had gone kind of soft on shoplifting or looting after the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, after which there was this wave of progressive prosecutors that came to power in several different cities. But actually, if you look at the data, it doesn't quite add up. So states that have the highest levels of theft, which are inclusive of Utah, Oregon, Minnesota, also have the highest arrest rates for shoplifting. So that kind of negates that theory. What seems to be the likely culprit is a rise in organized retail crime, which is known as ORC or ORCs. And these are carefully planned operations where criminal groups steal large amounts of swag, which have grown exponentially in scope and sophistication in the last few years.
1: So hang on, this is a large scale criminal group effort. And the thing they're going for is deodorant.
2: Yeah, so the most stolen items include deodorant, laundry detergent, razors, and baby formula, which seem pretty banal items, quite sort of low price range, but they are in consistent demand and very easy, therefore, to sell on. So often these gangs will use online marketplaces like Amazon, eBay, to sell on their stolen wares. Last summer, a couple in Alabama pled guilty to shifting $300,000 worth of stolen baby formula on eBay, which was during the time you might remember when there was a national shortage due to supply chain issues. So these groups are really targeting products which are always in demand and often when they are having supply chain shocks.
1: So your locked glass boxes in a pharmacy are treating the symptom, but not the disease. What's being done to fight these orcs?
2: Retail groups I spoke to were complaining there has been little progress in convincing these e-commerce firms to identify and shut down these gangs. One reason why this has spiked in the last few years is arguably the pandemic, which drove a lot of customers online. And these big online retailers became often the go-to place that people would buy their things like deodorant and things like that. So a federal law which would make it tougher to sell stolen goods online is currently making its way through Congress. And what it would do is it would force third-party sellers on platforms like Amazon, who sell a certain amount of goods a year, they have to hit some quota. It would make them provide a physical address, a bank account number and a tax ID, which would make these illegal transactions a lot riskier for them. And this could be voted into law as early as December. On the kind of law enforcement side, a coordinated federal and local effort to disrupt these gangs was launched in October called Operation Boiling Point. And along those lines, several states already have these task forces, but as many have pointed out, these gangs don't really pay much attention to state lines. They often work across state lines. So really a federal effort is needed to clamp down on them. So this is all a promising start, but for now the orc invasion shows few signs of slowing down.
1: Lizzie, thanks very much for your time.
2: Thanks very much, Jason.
1: all for this episode of the intelligence don't forget to let us know what you think of the show by taking our short survey the link it's still in the notes we'll see you back here tomorrow
3: traffic jams tailgating pile-ups